Editor Technical here. I was gonna make a joke about there being no cold open and then I realized, wait, this is the cold open. episode we're joined by guests phoenix from at french Ta- trackers and we're joined by kyle from at kyle gen and from at conflicts and host obviously by myself defense geek and Osen technical yeah and and, and this week we've uh, got the interesting situation where uh, all five of us are members of the military air tracking uh, association which is uh, an open source intelligence group set up um this year uh, in the sort of the, the weeks following the uh, Kabul airlift to help sort of pull the resources and, and, and the combined knowledge of some of the larger air, aircraft tracking accounts on Twitter um, to help sort of produce more informative and, and more useful uh, data for uh, the open, uh, open source intelligence community and indeed for uh, the world's media. Yeah, I think there was the general realization that a lot of content that was being put out over those few weeks was sort of a generally scattershot and lacking sort of a general narrative. We saw, you know, there was a lot of raw information being put out and very little actual information being communicated to people. And it, it was certainly a time where the members of the general public were paying a lot more attention to what we do. So there was sort of this imperative to communicate sort of the right stuff to them instead of just you know throwing facts and figures and pictures of c-17s at them yeah so um if i just get uh phoenix if you'd like to sort of just introduce yourself to our listeners and just explain uh what you and the french trackers do okay uh hi everybody i'm phoenix uh i'm from france and i live near toulouse uh, I am one of four administrators of uh, at French Trackers uh, Twitter account, and uh, with uh, the three of our administrators, we do uh, an, an air tracking of uh, military of France, uh, and in particular uh, French aircraft. Um, now, so... when it when it comes to uh, sort of the more French side of, uh, of course, ADSB tracking and general military tracking as a whole, um, what are some of the, the sort of unique sort of aspects of that? I know operating in the U.S., there's sort of the question of, you know, there's just so much space and, you know, a, a lot of room for stuff to happen. But sort of what are sort of the unique considerations when tracking inside of France? Uh, there is, um, we have... Um... An OPEX uh, in the uh, Sahel region, uh, and uh, that's very interesting to follow in this operation. Um, with uh, Kabul airlift, uh, it's very. Uh, um, uh, we follow the situation minute by minute, and uh, um, uh, our account is exploded uh, at this moment. Um, I think. Um, I was going to say one of the um, one of the interesting things I think I've noticed about tracking in France is the unique opportunity to be able to follow the um, poker the nuclear poker exercises over France. Ah, uh, yeah, uh, two, two weeks ago I think it's uh, happening. Uh, yeah, uh, it's near midnight. I don't have the time to, to follow all the operation, but it's very classic. Um, 
but um, um, with um, different uh, uh, with our account, um, I I uh, received some uh, um, some uh, response to um, little account who give me uh, information. For example, in in this, in uh, February twenty twenty one, I think. Um, for the first uh, poker exercise of the year, um, I receive uh, the map of um, closed areas uh, on the space, and um, we we can know uh, where our fighters, uh, where um, they do the, the low altitude penetration for exercise, and. Um, uh, the, um, and the OSINT is, um, in, for this particular practice, is very interesting because we have a lot of resources and uh, people, um, our own friends, uh, give me information. Um, for example, um, yeah, in the first um, poker exercise, uh, I received uh, a report for an, an tanker of a South of France. Um, it's very interesting. <laughs> that actually brings up another interesting question, too. I know in the U.S. there's a lot of government-related PR and communication through the media um, and just through a bunch of different channels. How does the French government and especially the French Air Force sort of publicize what they do and... Do they really communicate out with the French public frequently about their activities, or is it more um, not secretive per se, but um, uh, uh, more quiet? Yeah, I think the US and UK is very uh, big, and uh, we have a big echo, but France is pretty minor in, in social media, I think. Um, it's pretty classic in communication. For example, uh, there is an operation uh, uh, maybe two weeks uh, ago and they communicate uh, just now. Um, um, uh, on, the, on this summer, uh, the, the um, air base uh, based in, in Jordan, um, we have an, an renewable um, um, Sorry, um, and the renewalment of uh, two uh, Rafale uh, bases in, in this uh, airbase, and uh, they speak just uh, um, three weeks uh, later uh, about uh, this operation, and uh, three tankers are mobilized uh, for this uh, ferry flight, and uh, they don't communicate a lot uh, for that, but. Um, I they the the account of uh, French Air Force and uh, the, the Minister of Defense uh, uh, do a great job for the Kabul airlift. Um, maybe uh, just one day late before uh, sometimes, um, and um, they do a great effort for for this operation in particular. But it's pretty classic in general of uh, communication. Yeah, because I have noticed it is it is mainly through the form of just press releases, and that definitely gives you that opportunity of sort of 
being able to analyze what, you know, public information they put out is, which is basically just ADSB information. I was going to um, say, I, I don't really have any, I think the French have actually had, a, the Air Force in particular is what I look at, but it's actually in terms of their website and how they communicate through their website is that their website is actually quite com- quite um, comprehensive in terms of what it looks, in terms of what it covers as such as it's all, got all the press releases on. The French they do they do a and um I think it's monthly they've got a magazine as well on their website for people to look at, and yeah. particularly during um Atlantic Trident they devoted a whole massive se- a whole section and chunk of their website to, for them covering that so the their their web communication via their website is actually quite good from what I've seen. Yeah, the new website to create um new um. New possibilities to uh, French uh, French Air Force, but uh, other armies like uh, the, the Grand Forces and uh, the Marine National, the French Navy, mm-hmm. um, are pretty classic. Uh, they just post some articles on on the Minister of Defense uh, website, but uh, uh, just the French Air Force have an own uh, website, but. Uh, um they communicate on all social media i think uh on 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 the on the spectrum of uh uh social media uh, they are um on all i think yeah so so more of that traditional type of communication as you said um I think it's probably a good time now to pivot over into the main reason of what we wanted to talk about this week, which is how we do what we do. We're sort of not giving away the secret formula here, but um, we definitely want to sort of communicate how we're doing, you know, how we're following flights, how we're sort of assembling together a bunch of different disparate information into a comprehensive picture. Um, because, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of this information is sort of cloudy. <laughs> I think that's the best word for it. Um, so there's, you have to do a lot of digging, and there's a lot of different steps you have to take to sort of put together a good idea of what, you know, an exercise is or how different flights are operating on ADSB. And I think, John, you wanted to lead into that with uh, ADSB Exchange. Um, yeah, just sort of with the um the Kabul airlift in particular um that was uh sort of the the, the big eye opener particularly for me as to how useful ADSB exchange is um for those of you not familiar with it um you can just google it it's basically a flight tracker um that has a lot of built-in filters um and it uses a, a whole variety of different sources obviously radar, satellite, um, and various other uh, sort of less common um, sensor uh, kit. And it's um, particularly with the uh, the Kabul airlift, which was, it's fair to say, wasn't a particularly public sort of event, as in it wasn't an exercise, it wasn't something that, you know, US or, or, or foreign media was publicizing weeks in advance because it was no it was it was definitely an operational activity um and and adsb exchange is is sort of unique in the way that it operates um 
it's very low overhead, basically individual streamers utilizing uh, software-defined radios to receive um, ADSB communication from aircraft. The, the really great asset with ADSB Exchange is that they don't block anything. Um, so their, their coverage might not be as comprehensive, but you're able to view flight history and flight data for aircraft that other um, companies actually block the flight history for. So that's a that's a really good asset, especially for um, military flight tracking. Um, the big thing ADSB Exchange allowed us to do was to track B fifty two history um, as they were operating over um, Afghanistan. Um, it allowed us basically to form a pretty good picture of aircraft as they were coming and going, and to look back um, in the sort of historical record and see where they were over the past few weeks and get a good idea of sort of how much activity there was um, on that side of things, um, which is something that sites like uh, Flight Radar 24, which is more um, definitely more public-facing and popular than ADSB Exchange, um, can do just because they block a lot of military air traffic history. Yeah, in particular for French aircraft, without uh, ADSB, I think uh, I, we can do anything <laughs> because all aircraft is blocked on... On flight uh, flight twenty four, or overs. And also the good thing with ADSB as well is I don't know if any of you mentioned it already, but it's that you just got like a button at the top you can click to just filter between military aircraft and all aircraft. Um, it doesn't always catch all of them, obviously, but it is good just to get a kind of quick overview of maybe an area of the world that might be worth looking at. Yeah, particularly when you bear in mind that. If you open ADSB Exchange with no filters, um, for example, at this time of the evening, there's well over 10,000 aircraft that they have the ability to track, and you could have, you know, easily 2,000 on screen at one time. <laughs> but with the filter dropped to just military aircraft, it's a lot more manageable. You've got, you know, a couple was... of hundred maybe. I was going to say another really great um, flight tracking feature, which I don't think gets utilized as much as I think it should, is um, Radar Box 24. And there's a really um, good good little feature on there when you go into this list of um, receiver stations that are receiving the data from the aircraft. If you go into that, it'll often it'll bring up a list at the side with all the different flights on, and it'll catch a lot of flights either on MLAT or Mode S that aren't being picked up by either Flight Radar or ADSB at at times obviously you don't you're not going to know the exact position on them but it'll give you a rough area within the range where it's being picked up from i've, yeah, seen, on, I've seen on twitter huge... wouldn't it um people a lot of people have been picking up chinese military aircraft is that how they've been doing it i've seen yeah it's a massive part of it is that is often you'll get their hex codes will come up that come up over there yeah it's usually the receivers from taiwan are able to pick up some chinese activity over the mainland um additionally over iraq um, just due to the nature of how many trackers there are um, in the country, there's usually only one or two that are operational, but you can still get an idea of what aircraft are actually up over the country just from the um, uh, general non-positional related um, uh, ADSB sort of received uh, transmissions. Yeah, and it, it's fair to say that particularly for me and uh, Evergreen Intel, when we were putting together um, the lists of 
military transport aircraft involved in the Kabul airlift. We were using ADSB, we were using flight radar, we were using radar box. Um, there's a few other tools as well that I use. Uh, Plane Finders database mm -hmm. um, is very useful for matching up uh, airframe numbers with hex codes. Um, I think it's probably one of the most extensive um, sort of databases for that sort of thing in the world. Um, and, and, and yeah, and I think that the 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 general message you can draw from that is the fact that there is no one best site for doing this. There's no one best site for tracking. There's no one best site for you know figuring out what's up and what's you know over a certain country at any one time, you have to utilize multiple different sites to sort of get the full picture of the situation. You know, uh, ADSB exchange has no blocked history, but flight radar has, you know, uh, general better coverage in general. So you can utilize them in tandem sort of to find things that you wouldn't be able to find with only one site. So if you lose coverage of an aircraft, you can possibly go and find it on flight radar 24. And, and that's just something that definitely, is important to take into mind that, you know, utilizing multiple sites significantly um, increases your ability to actually do the tracking. Uh, definitely. Um, and it, you know, I've just, I've, obviously I've got, I've always got the kind of different flight radars and, and plane radar, radar tracking sites up. Um, I just thought it was something quite interesting uh, as you were talking. I've just looked, uh, I was just looking at Taiwan. Um, there's currently a U.S. Navy P-8 just circling just off the Taiwanese coast. Um, I don't often see that. I know it's probably not that uncommon, but it's... Uh, yeah, and that's, that's one of those things where, you know, you can have just military flights up and filtered, and, you know, you can catch things as they're happening. Like, obviously, if there's a P-8 up south of Taiwan, it sort of indicates that, you know, the U.S. is currently deployed an asset to either watch for something or they're attempting to observe something most likely being done by the Chinese. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just because of the nature of how ADSB works um, and even, you know, military aircraft are forced to use it in sort of busy areas. It just it's a massive asset to um, to just flight tracking in general and to people who want to figure out what's happening. And it's worth saying that it, the fact that we have all these flight trackers, this is something that didn't exist for the general public, you know, 15, 20 years ago, maybe even, you know, talking 10 years ago. Um, and it's, it's hugely helpful for us because it gives us an insight into what's going on that we wouldn't otherwise get because as we've already alluded to, a lot of military forces will not sort of openly discuss what flights are going on, what exercises are going on, what missions they have going on uh, in support of different operations around the world. And ADSB and flight radar and, 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 and all the other flight tracking applications that are out there help us to get a bigger picture of what's going on. And a lot of the time as well, we, we will hear one thing from sort of defense spokespeople and from the media and so on and we'll be looking at our flight trackers and be thinking well hang on we can see things are slightly different to that yeah especially when it comes to things like deployments into a region i mean when 
the Afghan airlift was occurring, um, we were able to fairly accurately calculate um, the number of aircraft going in and out of uh, Afghanistan each day just because pretty much every single aircraft as it was leaving and as it was returning had its ADSB transceiver on. So we were able to have a really good gauge, and I know Defense Geek, um, you were very, very on top of this, um, sort of keeping a running tally of sort of how much aircraft capacity was moving back and forth in between the country. And I think we had a pretty good idea even before the U.S. was announcing um, how much capacity was moving in and out, you know, the actual capacity. Yeah, and I, th I think it's fair to say as well that we were seeing an uptick in the number of flights sort of a good 24, 48 hours before the U.S. sort of formally declared that an evacuation was underway. Um, again, you know, had this been 10, 15, 20 years ago, without these, you know, really useful tools that we have, we wouldn't have known what was going on until a formal statement had been released. Um, and to a certain extent, that has kind of meant that Certain, certainly in recent times, politicians are now, in, in, to some regard, being held to account for what information they are telling the public. Um, because with tools like this, we can now sort of look at our maps and, and, and see what's really going on, often before any formal announcements are made. Yeah, absolutely. And at the same time, we also are seeing some level of democratization of information, um, which has presented some issues, of course, as we know, if we have access to, you know, this information and we have access to detailed flight information, then potentially nefarious actors do as well. And that's certainly something to take into mind, um, you know, as we move forward and as we, you know, gather more information, it's just something to be cognizant about not saying that what we're doing is bad or that we should stop or that you know being able to communicate this information is a negative is a net negative thing it's just something to sort of remember i mean it's a tool isn't it you know tools can be useful good or bad it's just however people use it yeah information is powerful for many different people for many different reasons i think and again i you know, I can see why certain governments aren't happy that everyone can see what they're up to. Um, you know, a, a key example would have been, um, you know, Turkey when they were uh, oh, absolutely weapons. was about to say yeah, you, that. Know, you know, moving between <laughs> um, moving weapons and and soldiers to Libya, and also in the uh, Azerbaijan uh, Armenia war last year. Um, again, you you could literally watch the the kind of um, Azerbaijani cargo aircraft take off from Baku, land in Turkey, and then go back several times a day, and it's like it's pretty obvious what's going on. Um, but you know, this is and obviously, you know, um, Turkey weren't very happy about it from what I remember. Um, and also, there was I can't remember who it was. It's someone in the Twitter group who has beef with a certain airline. Again, I believe it's a Libyan airline. Um, he called them like arms trafficking or, or something along those lines um but but like literally just using like open source flight tracking websites and you know and, and social oh, media that's your john isn't yeah, it yes say, just, yeah, yeah. You say that, he's just liked one of my tweets <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i couldn't remember it. who it was but yeah i remember he uh he's i can't remember what the airline is but i know they just keep sending him abuse on twitter which is fantastic 
yeah, he's done some great job at um, sort of uh, uncovering these white label airlines that, you know, fly under, of course, you know, commercial uh, cargo carrying labels, but frequently serve as, you know, proxies for a lot of different countries to transport arms, ammunition, supplies um, into war zones. And that's definitely one of the other important things is, you know, uncovering what certain countries want to keep covered up. Um, a lot of countries have sought to use these airlines as a way to sort of separate themselves from their involvement in a conflict, especially countries like Turkey. Um, so it's, it's definitely an important thing to sort of reveal what's happening. Yeah, and I think other sort of key examples, particularly from the last sort of 12 to 18 months, um, would be sort of the the constant ferrying of, of goods between Venezuela and Iran. Um, and I think we, it's fair to say we've also had uh, cases from um, Russia and, and Syria as well. Um, that, that, that sort of featured quite heavily as well, I think. It's fair to say. Yeah, no, definitely. And, uh, you know, in the same vein of Iran, obviously, we you, you know, you always see the regular uh, flights from Iran to Syria. Um, and then everyone's watching, watching the skies, then waiting for the kind of inevitable Israeli airstrikes. You know, twenty-four to forty-eight hours later. Um, again, that, that, that's a. I mean, obviously, it wouldn't make much difference to Iran or you know the goods they're transporting, but it's still incredible to me that they so they do it so brazenly, and that everyone can just watch these uh, arms shipments or or whatever they are come I mean, so regularly. Um, obviously, they do it with full in you know in full view of everyone. Which is, you know, fantastic for us, but yeah, and and if I can just sort of get uh, you three's opinions, um, I think certainly for me, it 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 it's kind of changed the way that um, the media now looks at conflicts as well, because with all this extra information that we can now get ahead, as I said, of of sort of political announcements, um, what 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 sort of impact do you think like open source flight tracking? for example, has had on the way that media portray different situations we've seen? Well, I was going to say, like, particularly from a media point of, like, a media point of view is that it can be used as partly as more evidence to essentially say, well, the X country's government has said and claimed this, but open source data shows the opposite occurring. Yeah, you, you said exactly what I was going to say. It's I think it's taken the media are less likely to maybe take a government's word at face value when there's so much you know immediate evidence to the contrary. It essentially just calls. It essentially just makes it provides room for governments to be essentially governments around the world to be essentially called out by the media when they've attempted to lie or obs- change the f- not necessarily change the facts, but essentially hide them as such. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, uh, an example I'm thinking of um, where government claimed one thing and then obviously proven the other one was um, when Iran shot down that Ukrainian airliner. Obviously, that was a civilian aircraft. It was on all the flight tracking websites. Um, and it wasn't so much like the uh, flight tracking websites showed anything different had happened, but it, it was a combination of um of a combination of that and then obviously the you know the 
the photo and video evidence which came out again on on social media which kind of got them to change the narrative um but i can remember when it happened i remember like the first thing i remember checking was like the flight tracking websites and i can remember you could go back and you could watch that flight take off turn kind of start um you know, kind of start increasing in altitude and then just you know kind of blinking out of existence on the on the screen and it's you know it's quite weird to watch when you know exactly what happened to that aircraft yeah. um I, I can remember you know everyone was kind of um kind of you know looking at the on flight radar 24 obviously you've got the kind of altitude um data and kind of speed data and everything and everyone's kind of looking at that to try and see if there was anything that kind of suggested it was like a technical issue or, or you know or human error or something like that um I mean, that's, you know, I don't, I, I, I'm not very great at <laughs> interpreting that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, that, that's the kind of first, um, the first kind of example that's popped into my mind about, you know, uh, about government claiming one thing and then having to retract it and admit to something else. Uh, yeah, and it's fair to say that, like, like you say, that data was incredibly useful because that sort of gave the world a glimpse of what had actually happened well before the black boxes were recovered and well before any sort of formal investigation into the crash had had gotten underway oh yeah definitely and you know you could definitely make the argument that they changed and admitted to what happened almost so entirely based on um like open source you know kind of like researchers who were digging into it and finding these images and finding these videos and hmm. you know piecing together the, the um what happened you know because i can remember there was photos of missile debris and eventually there was you know eventually the video that came out which showed a missile hitting the aircraft which you know is was kind of nailing the coffin so to speak for the iranian government yeah. um but you know you go back 20 years or even you know not maybe not even that long 15 years ago that footage wouldn't have existed um and, you know, we might never have known exactly what happened. You know, people would have claimed various things, but, you know, the, you, you know, the truth might never have come out of something like that, which is, you know, which is what makes, you know, the um, open source kind of element of things these days, you know, particularly interesting. Yeah, because p- particularly with countries like Iran and North Korea and Venezuela, which is, it's fair to say are fairly secretive in their approach to sort mm-hmm. of the outside world, open source information particularly flight tracking and and and, and that sort of thing has kind of split their that you know their insides open if you like it's made them made it things very difficult for them when they want to try and hide what's going on um and and not just sort of militarily we're, we're also talking about for example all the protests that have been going on in iran for well over a year and a half now um as, as much as I hate this particular platform, uh, TikTok, um, I think it's fair to say it's, it's become a, a major source for um, information for us, hasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, it definitely has. It's, uh, kind of, I think it's the bane of militaries around the world or authoritarian governments around the world, TikTok at the it's, moment. Because, you know... it, except China, anyway. <laughs> except China. Well, I consider it's a Chinese app. It's, uh, it's pretty impressive, but... But it's like uh, the, the snap map um, yeah. during the carbon lift. It's very uh, useful too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Snapchats, snap maps, and just Instagram as well. Um, just becoming really, really useful. And that, that that that's kind of the beauty of of open source intelligence. It's all 
from places and and from apps and stuff that pretty much anyone can access um yeah and it's it's the sort of the beauty of it all is that we take the information all of that information and we we use it to tell the story in a way that sort of most people just wouldn't be able to do they just wouldn't have the time to do or they wouldn't know how to oh exactly um and, and and one of the main things I use, like, at a flight tracking thing, and it's one of the things that, you know, I'm, I'm always surprised appear on a flight tracking thing, is just the sheer volume of Turkish drones that uh, appear up. Like, even when they're kind of operational and over kind of, like, active war zones, like Syria and Iraq, they always appear on on, on flight radar. I mean, I've looked right now, there's, there's two pretty much on the, on the Iraqi border, just kind of circling various towns or villages. Um... You know, you look at Syria sometimes, and there's six, seven drones all over kind of uh, northern Syria, and I always find that quite interesting um, because you can you can always tell, you know, um, when they found something or when <laughs> when they've found someone they're looking for because they'll just be circling the same village for hours and hours and hours. Um, there's all you know a lot concerning a lot of militaries when you know they kind of like active operations that you know they'll never appear on on uh flight tracking websites with that notorious exception of when india forgot to switch the transponders off when they were bombing pakistan a few years back i don't know if you remember that people were just watching <laughs> watching them kind of cross the border circle for a bit and come back um i think a few people who were tweeting about it got their account suspended i don't know if any of you guys remember that um but that was definitely uh, an interesting couple of weeks. Yeah, and I think to a certain extent as well, what we're seeing um, from some countries now <laughs> is that they're almost using the fact that there are open source intelligence sort of trackers out there watching aircraft movements almost to try and sort of help form their narrative of things. Um, I think an example of that that we probably see most commonly would be um, in the Korean Peninsula. Um, where we see on a regular basis U.S. sort of uh, intelligence gathering aircraft doing their little orbits watching North Korea closely. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact that we're able to see that and the fact that we report on it is almost um, a way for the U.S. effectively to sort of just remind North Korea that they're there and that they are watching still, even if... North Korea is perhaps not as much of a focus in the news as it has been, say, a couple of years ago. No, definitely. Um, yeah, because I can remember when there was the rumor that North Korea were going to conduct another nuclear test. You could all, you could watch the kind of I can't remember exactly which aircraft they were, but the kind of um, the, the nuke sniffers, I believe, is kind of the informal term for them, just kind of going up and down the border and along the coast and stuff like that. So. I remember there's a few late nights when people would see those go up and be like, oh, maybe tonight's a night. Um, but I don't think it ever kind of happened. But it's going back to like what you said, it's kind of like not a warning as such, but it's kind of almost preventative, isn't it? Like North Korea might say, oh, well, if the aircraft's up tonight, maybe we won't do it on this particular occasion or yeah. or something else. But <clears throat> yeah, no, definitely. Because, you know, if you know, one of those aircraft are up, even if, you know, the media don't pick it up. You know, one of us do normally. So someone who's got nothing better to do than watch these websites all day, of course, they'll get tweeted about, and maybe I'll get to pick up a bit of traction. Um, so it definitely gets noticed for sure. 
Uh, yeah, so North Korea acting up again, which is, <laughs> I think they were getting a bit jealous that they weren't in the news as much, really. Um, but, what, it's been four missile tests over the last month, which, as far as I could tell, is some of the most kind of, um, lost the word for it, not compact, compressed, something along those lines. Condensed. Almost, yeah, condensed kind of missile testing they've done, as far as I can tell. Because um, it's been more or less one a week, isn't it? Which I can't remember them kind of doing anything along those lines. Even at the kind of height of the kind of tensions with the US, um, it was obviously a lot of tests, but they definitely win one a week. Um, and what's kind of interesting to me as well is they just the kind of variety of missiles. So I think there was, um, there was. I think the most recent one was an anti-aircraft missile, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, and then before that, it was the hypersonic glide vehicle. Um, yeah, which is, uh, uh, as I tweeted at the time, it's it's an interesting <laughs> development because. North Korea's gone from sort of everyone just thinking, yeah, they're just trying to develop ballistic missiles that they can fit a warhead on. Um, and suddenly now they've got anti-aircraft missiles and this, uh, as you say, hypersonic glide vehicle, um, which is a technology that sort of even the US, Russia and China haven't sort of officially perfected yet. No. Um and, and you know, speaking of China, there was the there was another missile test recently, which looked almost identical to a Chinese kind of equivalent. Um, so I mean, I, I don't know if China is kind of stepping up like kind of assistance of North Korea's missile tech, or if they've always been at this kind of you know, all they've kind of kept the same level, and now North Korea has finally cracked a few things. Um, but it seems they've you know they've definitely they're definitely not as much of a I don't want to say a joke as such, but it, it, it a lot of people did kind of see North Korea as a joke, especially like the missile tests, as kind of nothing to be concerned about, because um, they were kind of seen as using kind of Cold War era tech and just kind of nothing that could really do significant amount of damage. But like now they're kind of branching into these hypersonic, uh, you know, glide vehicles and kind of almost modern looking anti aircraft systems. It's definitely not a worry as such, because I, I can't see anything really um, happening on the Korean Peninsula. Not definitely, well, maybe a few years ago it was more of a chance, but I can't see it now. But it's definitely interesting to see how North Korea have um, kind of modernised their military over the last decade or so. Yeah. And it's worth adding as well that, you know, South Korea has gone from a few years ago under a different president where they were sort of very very concerned about North Korea and its and its missile developments and so on to where they are now where they seem somewhat you know, unbothered by uh, what's going on in the North and at the same time they're developing their own weapons and supposedly also trying for an active peace plan with North Korea and it it's such a weird dynamic um I, I know their relations have, have sort of broken down somewhat, South Korea's, with uh, Japan, kind of as a result of all of this. Um, and we are, of course, you know, we, we can't sort of mention North Korea's missile tests with also, without uh, also mentioning South Korea having a, a submarine-launched ballistic missile test not too long mm -hmm. ago. Yeah, I think it's an, just a response of uh, 
um, of a soft uh, uh, um, <laughs> uh, test of uh, her own um, uh, sub-lunched um, missiles. And that definitely is. Yeah. So you don't have you didn't often even when North Korea was at their most kind of um antagonist or you know, or, or you know, kind of when they were doing a lot of uh I can't even remember what the exact words they traded with Trump were, but when there was a lot of threats kind of going back and forth, it, it didn't seem South Korea were even that much that bothered at the time then because you know, North Korea's focus was almost entirely on the US. They weren't really threatening South Korea as much. Um and you know you don't often hear about South Korean missile tests, so especially you know a submarine-launched ballistic missile, which is, I mean, not again in terms of countries which have done that. It's again a quite a small club, I believe. So, yeah, it's definitely interesting. And obviously, like I said, the tensions with Japan aren't great. Yeah. Not again, I believe anything's going to come of that. Like, I, not you know, especially not with. A kind of shared threat of China on the doorstep, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think a lot of people are always surprised when you know they they see that like South Korea and Japan they they don't really have a great relationship. It's almost you know quite confrontational a lot of the time. Um, I suppose it makes sense when you kind of if you look back at the kind of a historical, you know, of the region. But um, yeah, the that that kind of region of Asia isn't as uh, unified <clears throat> as perhaps a lot of people might think they are. And it, it's worth saying as well that obviously with if, if North and South Korea are indeed engaging actively in, in sort of diplomatic efforts, um, it kind of throws an interesting power dynamic at Japan, who in recent times in particular, I think it's fair to say, have been sort of looking to Australia and the UK um, alongside the US as sort of their main allies in that region. Um, mm -hmm. Albeit obviously the US and the UK not so much being physically present in the region as sort of diplomatically present. Yeah, there's a lot of um, because the art of the Japan, um, the military, they're trying to. But well, I mean, the officially they only had a, a defense force, right? And I think they're currently in the process of. It's still branded think... all as um. Um, it's still branded as defense force as such because you've got the GSDF Japanese Air Self-Defense Force, GMSDF Jap Japanese Maritime Self-Defense Force. It's still mm -hmm. branded as that, but it's still branded as self-defense force. But I mean, granted, they can't do much with that con because of their constitution, but it's essentially one of the world's best equipped militaries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, and as if they are, kind of, they are very slowly kind of trying to... Um... Mm convert themselves into more of a traditional military i suppose and and south korea is is sort of very similarly equipped to japan i think it's fair to say they've got a lot of the same sort of u.s based tech and um you know mm -hmm. particularly navy wise they use a lot of the same sort of warship designs and, and sort of weapon systems as uh, the americans and the japanese and, and, yeah, like yeah. Um, the um, AGs. Uh, yeah, yeah um, like, like the Aegis system. Um, and, you know, that kind of... It, it makes for an interesting power dynamic because it's you've got two... You've got Japan and South Korea who aren't necessarily on the best of terms but are armed and allied with the same US 
you know, sort of military forces. And they both, both, both countries have a fairly substantial U.S. military presence in them as well. I think it's fair to say. Um, I think if North Korea were to attack one, you know, potentially the other might not get involved were it not for the U.S. presence, perhaps, um, or, or the sort of the wider threat. And I think it's fair to say these latest North Korean missile tests have sort of very much brought that threat into sharp focus. Um, the ballistic missile tests that we saw the other week, um, the range that was talked about, I think it was 1,500 kilometers or something like that, puts the whole of South Korea and pretty much the whole of Japan within range of these weapons. And it's fair to say that North Korea is probably only really looking at those two countries um, in the region, obviously because they have US presence on them, but also because North Korea is fairly well allied with China. Um, they don't really have much of an issue with Russia. And on the uh, the same topic of, of missiles as well, there was that story a few weeks back, wasn't there, that Japan are going to place some missiles just off the Taiwanese coast, which China is very unhappy about. Um, because it, when you look at the map of Japan, you don't. It's it's really incredible how far south these islands actually go. I mean, the, you know, there's a, there's a tiny island literally just um, you know about 200 kilometers east of Japan of Taiwan. Sorry. Um, when you think you know Taiwan is you know a good thousand kilometers from the uh, Japanese mainland, it's it's very close and obviously very close to China as well. Um, who again been acting up in in recent days, especially again around Taiwan. Yeah, I don't know if you want to just sort of as we're sort of leading into that conversation. I don't know if you want to just sort of explain that a little bit further. Yeah, so it was uh, over the last. Two days, um, they've hit. I can't remember what it was yesterday. Was it 38 aircraft? It which... was 30, 38 ye yesterday in two separate incidents, in 39 today in two separate incidents. Yeah, uh, so uh, yeah, so 38 and 39 Chinese aircraft, which went into Taiwan's um, air defense identification zone, which isn't the same as breaching Taiwan's um, and space. space. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they've yeah, so it, they've been they've been kind of regularly doing this pretty much every day for, I mean, I don't know, months, years. You it's know, at least just... been going. It's at least been going on for this past year year or so because it's only recently that the Taiwanese Ministry of Defense started reporting the air recursions quite literally as they happen. Mm. Yeah. Um. Again, yeah, you you would kind of check on you you know you would look on Taiwan's Ministry of Defense like Twitter account and they'd be like, oh, today four aircraft breached. Yesterday there was two. There was ten the day before, um, and I believe until yesterday the record was twenty eight in a single day. Um, so yesterday's record of thirty eight and today thirty nine. It's a it, it's a big step up, um, and you know they, they, it was almost entirely. Um, you know, kind of fighter aircraft, so I'm just checking today, so in total today, they were uh, God, I'm trying to do basic maths here, 26 yeah, J-16s and 10 SU-30s um, which breached. I think in total in the last 48 hours, someone was saying there's been a total of 80 aircraft 
that have made incursions. Um, yeah, it's just crazy. And a lot of people kind of kind of try to downplay it by saying the you know Taiwan's air defense identification zone kind of extends over mainland China, which it does. But they don't report the aircraft which are over mainland China. If you ever look at the maps, you know the aircraft are always you know southwest of Taiwan, literally just inside the zone. So you know the Chinese aircraft, they know exactly what they do and they know how far they can push it without you know really triggering a kind of uh, you know a significant response um and you know just looking at the maps from today you know the su-30s kind of they, they kind of so they came from like they, they came from like china's mainland kind of go west of taiwan and then they turn around and go back to you know i'm assuming the base they came from so it's not like it's just um uh, standard movement, you know, something you'd expect. It's always, you know, it's quite obviously a provocative move. Um, and they've been doing it, like I said, daily almost, for, and well, probably more than for the last year, but like you said, it's, it's only been reported for the last year. <clears throat> and obviously, it's um, come in the back of, you know, more, more, you know, stronger rhetoric from Chinese officials and media personalities who, you know, semi-regularly threatened to invade Taiwan and, and all the rest of it. Mm. So, you know, I, I don't I don't you know, I don't think it necessarily believes that like an invasion is imminent or even close. Um it's definitely a significant show of force. Yeah. Um kind of you know like I said to even get um you know forty aircraft over the course of a day to just <laughs> To just piss off your neighbours is, is spectacularly petty. Um, yeah, but it's definitely something interesting that's been happening over the last 48 hours, and it'll be interesting to see if what the count is tomorrow. Um, if they report it tomorrow. I don't know if they report it on Sundays. I know <laughs> the Ukrainian uh, OSE monitors never report stuff over the weekend or, or on Sundays, which I always find really annoying when I'm trying to find out what's going on. Um... <laughs> So yeah, we'll see. We'll see if the if the if the if the kind of count is in you know if it's still in the thirties, um, and it might necessitate watching a little bit closer, mm. um, and like we talked about earlier, maybe seeing if we can pick up a few of the hex codes on 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 tracking websites. Yeah, I, I think it's worth also just adding as well that as much as there are people out there who are adamant that China is gearing up to invade Taiwan, um particularly from sort of the naval side of things, they are not quite in a position where they're ready for that kind of an invasion. If they were to launch an airborne invasion tomorrow, I I wouldn't be entirely surprised. They certainly have the military transport capacity for something like that. Um, but again, you know, the likelihood of them attempting something like that is as Kyle said, fairly, fairly low, um, particularly given that, as we say, Taiwan is uh, very keenly uh, making the world aware of the flights that are entering the uh, the air defence identification zone. Um, and also, I think it's worth saying that any sort of mass of uh, military transport aircraft moving from t uh, China out towards Taiwan um, would probably end up all over the likes of Snap Maps and Instagram and TikTok and so on. Um, so any sort of attempt would 
very, very quickly lose the uh, element of surprise. I mean, yeah, it definitely, it definitely will very quickly be all over social media. But I mean, like Taiwan is the shortest distance. It's only about 185 kilometers from from the Chinese mainland. Mainland. So it's, you know, I feel like they could get a significant amount of aircraft up and and over before any, you know, it hits social media in a significant way. Um, but again, like the short distance is again um, interested in terms of you know a, a potential invasion in that you know 185 200 kilometers it's well within the range for kind of conventional missiles um but they might not you know obviously you know like aircraft kind of uh strike kind of strategic strategic areas in taiwan would be you know necessary they could you know they could do a significant amount of damage to the country without a single aircraft even leaving an airbase in mainland china mm. um which is the real danger um yeah, they I, do. I um, oh, sorry. <laughs> oh, go no, on. Um, just I want to say um, they do. Um, um, the Ch- uh, Taiwan Air Force do um, um, training um, on highways of Iceland. Uh, yeah. Do they do training on highways? Did you say? Yeah. Are they kind of landed on highways? Yeah. Yeah. If um, air bases are, are attacked, oh, I know. Yes. Do, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just I looking at Taiwan's air force now. I have, I have no idea, like what kind of, um, you know, what kind of equipment they have, what kind of, I mean, what kind of uh, quantities. Um, I'm just going to the kind of standard Wikipedia. Um, I mean, yeah, it says here they've got 116 F-16s and 40 on Mirages and you know, a hundred and so kind of elsewhere. So they, they definitely don't have like a, they definitely got a more significant air force than some countries a lot bigger than Taiwan, mm. which is, I mean, unsurprising really when you see who their neighbors are. Um, but I suppose, you know, you can have all the aircraft in the world. If, you know, if your air, if your airfields are rubble, there's, there's not much you can do about it. Um, but yeah, it's de- it'll definitely be an interesting one to watch. Especially they said there's that there was that P eight kind of hanging around Taiwan. Um, so I mean, as, as much as we're all watching that region, the US are obviously watching it quite closely as well. Um, what they'll do about it if China does decide to act is, I suppose, maybe a debate for another time. But it's definitely going to be interesting. That P eight's disappeared as well. I just wanted to have a look to see if it's still there. It's no longer on flight radar. <laughs> Right, okay, I think we will uh, start to round it up there. Um, has anyone got sort of any major news stories from uh, open source intelligence world? or There's the rumours from tonight from Afghanistan, isn't it, that the lights in Bagram are back on? Hmm. What, and what that could mean. I mean, there's obviously the rumours that China have moved in, but there's no evidence of that at the moment. Yeah, I quite like the explanation I saw earlier that um, the Taliban have just finally found a light switch. <laughs> I did see that. That made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah I that think, did tickle me. Like you say, for the time being, it, it's probably important not to read too much into um, the lights turning back on at Bagram. Um, I think it's fairly safe to say it, the lights haven't turned back on because the Americans have returned. That's that's definitely not happened. But, um, <laughs> 
Well, I, I did see a couple of people say, oh yeah, oh yeah. No, I see a couple of people say there was some military aircraft um, that landed today at the airbase. <clears throat> Again, there's no photos or videos to say one way or the other. Um, but I guess I, I did have a look on Sentinel earlier to see if there was any recent satellite imagery. Um, but it's just 28th of September was the last one I have. But if it is the case and someone is moving in to Bagram, whether it's China or, you know, Turkey was uh, talking about it at some point, wasn't it? Or was that just Kabul Airport? They were thinking about kind of kind of um, moving into the. Um... Yeah. No, but they've they've definitely they've definitely turned the lights on for a reason, haven't they? I believe, and you know, not just not just making sure the power's still on. And before we finish, I'm just going to sort of give a quick roundup of some of the stories from the last two weeks. Um, as as we already mentioned, um, in the last sort of 48 hours, uh, China has sent somewhere in the region of 80 uh, military aircraft into Taiwan's air defence identification zone. Um, as as we sort of discussed, it, it it's something that has been going on for a while, but there's definitely been a significant uptick in the last few days um, of this. Um, the Israeli Defense Forces uh, intelligence chief has revealed that a U.S. decision uh, to conduct the airstrike that killed uh, Iran's General Soleimani uh, back in 2020, um, and I, I think it's fair to say we all remember that night very, very well, um, came as a result of Israeli intelligence that showed that General Soleimani was weeks away from beginning a campaign of attacks against U.S. forces across the Middle East. Um, that mm -hmm. article is uh, quite an interesting read. Um, I think Technical will probably uh, drop the link to it in the uh, description on YouTube if you want to go and check that out. The uh, UK's Red Arrows have uh, arrived in RAF Akrotiri yesterday um, en route to uh, the United Arab Emirates. They're already in the UAE. Oh, okay. They're already in the UAE. <laughs> Shows, <laughs> shows shows up. I think I think I think there I think there was a photo of them next to um, an Emirates airline. I think I saw something like that on Twitter. Ah, uh, okay. And the US, uh, CIA has revealed that during the Kabul airlift, um, CIA special operatives uh, conducted uh, their own rescue mission of, of persons in the country, and directly uh, enabled the rescue of two thousand U.S. citizens. 4,000 local staff who had supported the U.S. and the U.S. Embassy, and over 1,500 foreign journalists and non-governmental organization employees. Um, considering the airlift itself, uh, we saw, what, 100,000-plus evacuated? Um, that's, that, that's quite a significant chunk um, at the hands of the CIA, I think it's fair to say. No, that's definitely... Incredibly impressive. Um, I guess the, the you know the downside is that it was necessary in the first place, but no, it's it's definitely uh, definitely an impressive operation. So I think that all all the crews and everyone that was involved in that can be proud of themselves. Um, yeah. Politicians, not so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And that pretty much rounds up the uh, sort of news, the sort of major news stories for the last two weeks. Um, Thanks again to uh, Kyle and also to Phoenix for joining us uh, for this episode. It's been a pleasure to have you both on. Thank you very much. 
Um, you'll be able to find uh, the links to their Twitter accounts uh, in the description of the podcast episode for this week. Um, by all means, go and give them a follow. They're a great pair of guys um, and very, very good at what they do. Um, on the topic of the podcast, um, we have expanded a little bit further, as some of you will have seen uh, on Twitter today. Um, so along with the sort of usual uh, Spotify, Apple, uh, Amazon Music, Audible and Google Podcasts and obviously our YouTube video, um, we are now also available on Deezer, for those of you who use that. Um, we are shortly uh, to be available on Stitcher, which is another podcast streaming uh, site. And if you own uh, a, an Amazon Echo or the Google Home devices, uh, you can now listen to us on TuneIn as well. Um, if you'd like to support the uh, podcast in some way, we also know, so link for that will also be in the description. And with that said, uh, thank you very much for listening, um, and until next time, 